Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Mr. Scott Schober, the CEO of Berkeley Veritronics Systems. Scott, can I call that BVS or do you prefer the full name? Okay. So um, Scott's the CEO of BVS, and he's also the author of Hacked Again, and Cybersecurity is Everyone's Business. Hey, Scott, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So um, where are you? I'm, I'm based out of Metuchen, New Jersey, which is a small town about one mile square in central New Jersey, maybe 40 minutes outside of New York City. And how are things both uh, COVID-wise and weather-wise for you? Uh, weather's beautiful, nice sunny day. It's about the 70s out there getting a little warmer, which is great. COVID is finally starting to relax a little more. So people are still wearing masks, going into stores, this and that, but it, it's slowly lessening and there's less number of cases of actual COVID and certainly deaths have gone down and hospitalization. We were kind of a hotbed for a while. It was really scary. Most of the businesses in the industrial park were closed down. We stayed open through the duration because we were kind of deemed a critical essential business for the work we do supporting wireless threat detection tools for, for DOD customers, as, as well as some of the stuff that we do on supporting uh, rail, specifically locomotives for safety products. So um, it's been good, but it's been crazy as far as the world of business. So I can't complain, but it's been a lot of challenges implementing some of the code, uh, protocol for COVID. Well, it's good. It's good to hear that um, you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel there. Yeah. Um, here, for example, they, they just announced that masks are only going to be required or highly recommended for another two weeks and then the masks can come off uh, i'm curious how that'll play out because i still think some people will be more comfortable with them on um, and then of course there was just an announcement that the um, that indian variant and i know we probably shouldn't give it a national name but that variant that um, was originally spotted in india um, is is now been spotted in about 120 cases here so who knows how it's going to play out but you bring up an interesting point. I mean, you, your company, BVS, was um, deemed an essential or critical business, and you continue to work from the office, it sounds like, um, during this the pandemic. Um, a lot of companies couldn't, um, and people started to work remotely. I mean, that's just not just in the U.S., but globally. And that kind of fueled another whole set of problems related to cybersecurity. I mean, were you seeing anything like that? Uh, we didn't experience any specific things, but again, being a cybersecurity company, we were somewhat prepared already. We, we, we were challenged more with just, just the, the physical logistics of adjusting your business for um, proper distance between employee work areas. So we had fortunately a lot of space. I had to spread everybody out. So nobody's, right. no multiple people are in the same office, even production areas, people are separated. I bought some automated temperature testing, so everybody comes in the building, temp temperature is clearly checked, and it talks to you and reports it, and it clears you or, or sends you home. Fortunately, not one person in our company, nor their families, uh, got COVID, which was great, whereas um, adjacent companies in the area, they did, and in some cases, they had about 70% of their company was down with COVID, and, and at one point, they had one or two employees in for these are companies that have hundreds of employees. So it was devastating for many businesses just in our local area here. We were very fortunate. And I think 
in part, it's because we, we met immediately on it. We took precautions, not just cybersecurity, but even more specifically, the, the physical things that we had to do and work together as a team, as a company, communicated that throughout the whole process. And I think the employees really, they rose to the occasion. I think that's important within any business that you communicate the messages effectively, continually through the process as you work through that. And if everybody's a team player, it's going to work out. But you have to be willing to adjust the plan as a business owner. I have to be as flexible as possible, especially because we have people that are working. It's a lot of hands-on in sure. test tools that we make. Sure. Well, what about all the companies that have to switch to this remote work model? Um, what kind of, you know, threats did that expose in, in, in the context of cybersecurity? Yeah, in that particular case, it opened up Pandora's box. And what do I mean? People, unfortunately, when they're working from their, their home office, they're not set up. And, and it goes back to the basics. We're, humans are the weakest link always in the world of cybersecurity, in my opinion. Weak passwords. They're trying to remotely access their company's network. Uh, many people, again and again, I remind them they should use multi-factor authentication. But often they say, what? It takes too long. It's not <laughs> convenient. So right. they're making a conscious trade between weaker security if they're going with the, with that convenience. So you got to balance that out. Take a little bit more time. Use multi-factor authentication. Use a long, strong password. Make sure it's unique for the login. You don't write it down. Store that password in a good password manager, password vault. There's tons of them out there. Um, they're really good. And what does it do? It disciplines you to um, store them properly, securely, and it creates for you many times an automated strong password that you and I would probably not do because we say, oh, how am I going to remember this thing otherwise? Use well, a manager. Let me ask you this because this happens all the time. Um, you know, I'll open up a new account someplace and I put create my username and password and then I will get, you know, Chrome asking me, hey, do you want me to save this password? I will get my password keeper asking me, do you want me to save this password? What are the best practices around that? What I personally do is I use a hybrid system. I've got hundreds of passwords. It's a nightmare. And many business owners probably have the same problem. I do a combination. For my very secure passwords, um, the most secure where I'm logging into government websites when it's financial related, I'm actually using an old old school black book. I'm writing them down. Many people in the cybersecurity profession scoff at me and laugh. And, and here's my reasoning behind it. These I keep near and dear to me. I control them. I make them super strong and unique. And I keep them layers of security. Layers of security keep us safe. So it's a black book. It's in a locked safe, locked in my office, locked in the building with alarms and cameras. So layers of security are going to prevent the bad guy, hopefully, from getting through those layers and getting into my passwords. Uh, is it good to use Keychain on, on some of the browsers? Yes, if it's not as secure. If it's more of your, your basic login type of stuff, your, your social media accounts or things like that. I don't do it with financial myself personally. And also, I use a hybrid. I'm also using a third method, which is actually a password manager. I like Dashlane. It's nice. It's convenient. It's affordable. It's secure. I have not heard of them being compromised yet. I can't say the same of all the other password manager companies whom I won't name. So I think it's important for each person to look at what level of security they need and assign that, le that level of security and risk and balance it out 
by the way you handle and manage your passwords. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you're saying there. Um, I just do have one question. Sure. If in the case of the black book scenario, if you don't have access to it, let's say you're, you know, you're on a business trip, um, you're working remotely, that which most of the world is right now, and you don't have access to that safe for whatever reason, what do you do? Uh, you're either in trouble. If I go international and you know, I know I need to access certain things for banking, for stocks, for, for critical login, for payments, I will bring my black book with me. And again, I keep it in a locked bag and I actually have a combination lock on the side of my, my little briefcase there. So nobody can get in except me. It sounds pathetic. The only thing I can say for me, it works and I haven't had a compromise since I've implemented the system. Whereas go back to when I was first compromised and hacked in the company, I was, I was too writing things down, sticky notes and hiding in the drawers and doing what the average business owner did. And guess what? My company was hacked, credit card, debit card, Twitter account, repeated DDoS attacks to our website. We had no online commerce. Finally, we had $65,000 stolen out of our checking account, federal investigation. My life was turned upside down overnight because some of the safeguards that myself and my company did not employ. So to me, I had to do a 180 spin around and analyze all of these little weak spots. And I did have somebody come in and do a um, vulnerability assessment. Somebody else came in and did a penetration test. So they can help identify. And I encourage companies, small business owners, you can do that affordably. $2,000, hire a third party, come in, and you don't want to hear it, but they're going to tell you, hey, here's all the points of weakness in your company that I could hack into. And what does it do? It allows you now to go in and patch those and, and really reinforce your entire cybersecurity posture so it's difficult for a hacker to get in. What do they do? They're just going to move on to the next company. They're looking for the easy, low-hung fruit, easy targets that they can exploit, steal information, money, private information, and move on to the next target, sell it on the dark web. Absolutely. Unfortunately for, for many small business owners and large business owners or executives of large firms, ignorance is bliss. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, this is just a cost. And what's my ROI on that cost? And there's a whole discussion about there actually is an ROI on that um, if yeah. you, 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 know, you use the right heuristics to analyze it. But um, it's, it's kind of like people just don't want to know what, what's down that black hole. But let me step back a second. Um, we start talking about how, you know, remote work and work from home has created different vectors of threats for organizations um, and that the individuals who are working from home need to take responsibility with some of these best practices, which leads into the question, you know, a, a lot of people are under the impression, well, cybersecurity, that's that's the responsibility of some super tech guy back in the server room or something, right? I, I, I don't have any responsibility for cybersecurity. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a, an accountant, I'm a marketing, I'm a sales guy. I'm working from home. What's my role? But, you know, I mean, you make the point that um, cybersecurity is everybody's business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to what I was saying before, again, as a business owner in the security business, particularly cybersecurity, and again, we develop wireless threat detection. So we're dealing with the government, Fortune 500 companies all the time. Uh, it's important for us to take these steps internally and really, I think, understand it. And, and at the same time, it becomes not just my job or the IT department's job. Because, again, that, that was kind of my viewpoint in the past. I said, I have really smart people that work here that can configure and set up email and password. They can do a better job than I can. But guess what? 
if it becomes my business and it becomes their individual business, everyone from the CEO to the janitor needs to be on board with this. When you take that position within an organization, guess what? You will be so much safer than when you just push it off to the IT department. And I really address a lot of that, how you kind of take on that ownership in cybersecurity is everybody's business to the point where you start to understand where the vulnerabilities are, what best practices you as an individual in an organization can implement so you could start contributing to the company's overall cybersecurity stance and really strengthen that. And it's everything from just common sense things, not you know, creating long, strong passwords, not sharing it, talking about social media, not being too social on social media, obviously multi-factor authentication, how important it is. The list goes on and on and on for simple things that you can do in your organization. And even to your point, we talked before about remote office, it applies here in the office at your business as well as remote, something as simple as Wi-Fi. That's one of the most common conduits that hackers will use to get into your company. If they're trying to breach into a small business, where do they start? It's actually in the parking lot. They pull up in your parking lot and they're going to use social engineering techniques. They're going to call the receptionist and say, hey, how you doing there, Jeannie? I have a really important thing and say it's a law firm. I want to get this contract over to Mr. Smith. It's a multi-million dollar deal. I don't want to disrupt him. I know he's busy. I just need the password to get into the Wi-Fi so I can send that important email. And if they talk fast and convincing enough with the right acronyms and buzzwords, she goes, oh, geez, I don't want you know my boss to be upset. What's the password? Oh, it's Password one, two, three to get into our Wi-Fi. Again, it's irrelevant what they share with her, but she's not thinking about it. They're socially engineering their way around. Once they got that, now they place malware on the network. They work laterally and start gaining information, collecting information, so they can ultimately breach the company, steal personal information or whatever else their goal is there. So, but you can see how it all starts really by that wireless conduit as something as simple as pulling inside of somebody's parking lot. The same is true for our home office, because you're talking about remote. And, and I talk about this extensively in uh, cybersecurity is everybody's business. We need to think the same way. So is our home Wi-Fi router secure, or is it set to the admin default, password one, two, three? I got to think that for most people, that's that's what it's set up. <laughs> well, maybe not most people, but for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it is. I can tell you this every time I travel and I can go to a friend's house, a business meeting, if I'm presenting at a convention, doesn't matter. I always do a scan on my computer and I try to see if there's any open Wi-Fi connections, be it free at the hotel, a person that doesn't have it secure, an access point that's open. I always find at least one, yep. usually more than one. And I laugh every time. And I said, so. If that's representative over the past five years, I've been doing this now, and I always find one open, that, that's all you're looking for is that one guy that didn't take the time to get away from those defaults. And then on top of that, what do we want to do? We want to set up some level of encryption, WPA2, WPA3 encryption, that that's standard. If it's our home network, what do we want to do? Set up a guest account. So you never give out your master password to have access to your Wi-Fi system. Why? Because once it's on someone's device, it's safe. Next time they go by your house, what happens? Your Wi-Fi device, your, your, your mobile phone, your smartphone is going to automatically beacon and associate to that access point. Now they have inside access to your computer, which is no big deal if you're friends. However, what does that also mean? 
as a conduit, you're remotely connecting into your company's network. And we see what happens if malware gets on their smartphone, to your home Wi-Fi, to your company's network. And that's very typical how that happens if you follow the path of how malware gets into some of these larger systems, we quickly back up and say, oh, weak password, somebody shared a password, open Wi-Fi, didn't have multi-factor authentication on. So we could kind of see the path and you could trace it back. Almost every major breach had to do with some type of weak password or third-party access. And you look at Target, look at JP Morgan, look at Colonial Pipeline, the list goes on and on and on. That's interesting. Um, <clears throat> What about the uh, your thoughts in terms of best practices of using public Wi-Fi? So I'm traveling, ah, I'm going to pop into Starbucks or I'm at the local shopping mall and, hey, they've got Wi-Fi. Yay. <laughs> what should I be looking out for? Um, never use it. Right? I, <laughs> I, I demonstrated actually at a, at a trade show. We took it to the next step even. What I did was I took a drone and we hooked up a bridge access point. And what we did was really we set up what's called a man-in-the-middle attack. And it was a particular hotel, I won't name the hotel, and we flew this drone up above the audience, and people on their phone throughout my presentation were associating to the drone, thinking it was the hotel's free public Wi-Fi hotspot. They're taking pictures of the drone, the presentation, trying to email it to a friend, and at the end, I broke the news to them and said, guys, guess what? This was a setup, basically. We performed a man-in-the-middle attack. And we got over six people in this large audience that actually associated to it. It's innocent, but you see the danger there. People are so quick to click on sure. free, free, free. So maybe maybe the, the other side of the coin is, well, what, what should you do about it? Either use your cellular data. What I do is I use my phone as a hotspot and I host it to my laptop. And again, create a long, strong password that I know, only I know, that allows me to access and make that connection there. So I can turn my phone on sync it up to my laptop and have secure communications. Again, it comes at a cost. I'd rather trade you know, $20 in cellular data usage with my hotspot than risk getting hacked on a free Wi-Fi hotspot and compromising my information. Common sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you, you actually um, <clears throat> were hacked. I think it was in 2014, you and your business got hacked and you actually wrote a book about it. Um, why don't you tell us what happened and what, what were the lessons learned there? Yeah, it really started out very innocent, like anything else, where I had my credit card was compromised, and we, we've all had that. We call, write a letter, dispute the things, you get the money back, and then it was my debit card. This was personally. Then it happened at my company. Then it happened again personally. And, and in between all that, I'm getting issued new cards, and cards are coming, and I'm getting dizzy <laughs> almost because it wouldn't stop happening. I said, there is no way that over six times my credit card and debit card personally could be compromised and my company at the same time, as well as other um, individuals here that were on my board that had a compromise. So when you add it all up, it made no sense. I said, something isn't right. But then on top of that, my Twitter account was hacked and they were posting crazy messages and other things. Our online commerce site, which is very important for, for a small business because we're selling our wireless security tools, we couldn't sell because we're getting all hit by all these DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks where they flood your sure. website with junk traffic. Now nobody could buy or sell. I'm getting calls on the phone. Hey, your website's not working. I can't place this order. We're going, oh, no. All these things were happening and a whole bunch of other small stuff in between. Um, and that's when one Monday morning I came in 
I log on to the bank account and poof, I see $65,000 taken out of the account. I said, oh my goodness, this is crazy. In the process of it, I was able to get through the bank and law enforcement's help, some of the names of the individuals where that money went to. I did get the money all back for everything, which was good. Took a lot of work, federal investigation, paperwork, phone calls, letters, nightmare. Um, but in the process, I took some of the names of the people targeting my Twitter, targeting our website, um, the names of the accounts associated to the wire transfer. Most of them were aliases or fake names. Some of the stuff was real. And I was able to hunt them down with some help through another company that I work with uh, based out of Israel that did a dark web search. And they were able to actually identify them and confirm back then, yes, these are notorious hackers. So it at least helped me kind of validate in my mind, did they get arrested or prosecuted? No, they all got away. They stole a lot of money, all the credit card and debit card money. They got it. They sold it on the dark web. The, the bank made me whole, fortunately. So I got that money back and through the federal investigation, got the money that was stolen, $65,000 back to our checking account restored. And then again, since then, I had to put layers of security into our account with the bank so it doesn't happen again. Um, and so simple things like wire transfer money, that happens all the time. And you can do that from your smartphone, from your computer. I have that disabled. So now there's no way any wire transfers can go out of any of our accounts without me being there in person, showing them two forms of ID. Again, not real convenient, but very secure. Haven't had a problem in years now. So Much more convenient than, than, than going through uh, the whole ordeal that you went through, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Were, were you able to, um, you know, get an understanding of what was the original vector for the compromise? Yes and no. Um, okay. There, there was some resolution to it. Some of it I can talk about, some I'm not supposed to. Um, I, I, it, a lot of it, it started with weak password management, um, having too much information on social media, so social engineering could be employed to gather and garnish further information, enough so somebody could work their way in. Eventually, specific with the bank, they were actually targeting me but hacking into the bank in this particular case, which really scared me. And then impersonating tellers, moving money from account to account by taking on their actual names. And so they were not. So they actually got in the bank and they analyzed it for a while. And I thought that's the part that kind of interests me. Hackers don't move in, steal money and disappear all the time. Sometimes they get into a computer network and they reside there for a while. Why? Because they're gathering intel so they can cover their path. And that's what I think often is done, especially some of these larger hacks and breaches. They may be in there for months planning how they're going to do this. So I'm, in other words, I'm probably not the only victim that day that had $65,000 stolen out of my checking account. They move money from account to account to see how they could do it without getting caught. And it looks like other people are doing it. They cover the tracks. Then when they strike, they do it. And then that money comes out. Now that money gets dispersed and chopped up, almost like money laundering the way they do it and it hits the dark and they'll send it to multiple accounts and then they'll usually buy gift cards, give the gift cards to a girlfriend. The girlfriend gives back half the value in cash. So it goes through this channel where you can't easily chase it after a while, making it very difficult for law enforcement. Well, you bring up a couple of things. I mean, you know, you talk about the assistance that law enforcement help provided you. Um, earlier, you'd referenced the uh, colonial pipeline uh, malware attack. 
and a ransomware attack and um and and they were and they were they actually paid out i believe about four and a half million dollars in bitcoin um but the fbi was able to help them recoup about half of that um is the is law enforcement getting better on better at tracking down the bad guys yeah or is it absolutely yeah okay your point you're 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 dead right They're, they're getting better when do they do a great job or, or an exceptionally good job is when whoever is compromised shares the information right away. When I realized that money came out of my account, I responded and was on the phone with somebody in less than 10 minutes from the actual event happening. What does that do? It allows a bank to respond. If it's a credit card compromise, the issuing card company can respond, uh, alerted law enforcement immediately. And that's important to do. In some cases, if you're compromised, I got a friend called me the other day and her identity was compromised. Is your credit frozen? Did you report it to the local police? You know, if you take certain steps quickly, less damage can happen. And that's part of the problem. People are compromised or breached and they're scratching their head. What do I do? Should I call my insurance company and see if it's covered under cyber insurance? Maybe we should, you know, unplug the computer. If, If you wait and lose time, that's valuable time that can actually be used, especially by law enforcement, to track and follow and get your money back quicker. Um, In the case of Colonial Pipeline, they worked very quickly with law enforcement and actually said, here's the address of the wallet that the Bitcoins we sent over were to. They in turn could then follow that wallet and observe any money size transactions of a certain size that are moving around on the public ledger cryptocurrency is reported and then suddenly they see a big a big movement of funds guess what we saw it coming from here it's going here let's let's target this account and then you can catch the bad guys basically so they got most of it back before bitcoin kind of plummeted which is another story but uh, it's difficult to do they're doing a great job with it but share the information freely and quickly when public and private work together they can do a lot of things to keep safe yeah so one of the things that we advise companies on is that they should have a incident response plan in place because just like what you talked about, when you get breached or you suspect that you might be breached, whatever, you don't want to have to sit around that. Okay, now what's next? What do we do? And get, gather everybody up in a room and um, or virtually or not. But it, it, it's by that point, it's just kind of too late. You need to have something you know, that you can just pull off the shelf virtually and just say, here's step one, two, three, here's the responsibilities, et cetera. Um, what kind of advice do you give, do you give companies? And I mean, do you, do you advise the same for individuals? Or, I mean, you know, what, what, what would you say? I think these days everybody has to have a plan. It could be within a family. I have a plan. It, we have a, a to-go kit in my garage sealed in a watertight Pelican case, as, as crazy as that sounds. If, if things get really bad, a storm, an earthquake, a major tragedy, power out, phone grids out, whatever. We all know what the code word is and where we're going to meet and who's going to take the kit and how we can survive. The same thing needs to be done at the next level, a small business or even a large business. Do you have a plan to your point? And if you don't, get a plan in action. If you don't have the wherewithal to get a plan in action, hire a third party that can come in. And I usually encourage everybody to say, what you need to do is really look at what what are your valuables? What's your crown jewels? What's your IP? What information is valuable in your organization that you're trying to protect? Is that information regularly backed up, disconnected from your network, stored off-site? 
fire, hurricane, flood, hacking event, doesn't matter. You have something to, to go to then. So if you're a victim of ransomware tomorrow, you can just ignore it. Why? Because you wipe the system, re reinstall your, your, your backup, and you're back in business, even though painful and dramatic as it may be. It's a lot better than paying millions of dollars to somebody that you don't know if they'll ever actually hand you your encryption key. So having a plan ahead of time, anticipating something, you'll probably find most of the time you'll never use that plan, and that's good but you're better prepared if and when the inevitable happens and you are breached or something major happens to you. You also, in the process of developing a plan, you learn how to thin things out and get rid of things. Like we're, we're doing some stuff here now and the process identified all these records are old enough and they have secure information. They're locked up, but they're time to go through the shredder. So it right. forces you to purge and clean and, and in the process, what do you do? You reorganize. So you're, you're a little bit more nimble as a company and you can respond post-breach if you are a victim of it. And I think that's really important, especially as employees are hired, employees retire or leave. Things change. It's a very dynamic environment. You have to make sure everybody's on board and follows through on the plan and at the same time understands what the risks are. Those risks aren't just tied to the company. That's tied to you as an employee, which affects you and your family and your livelihood. So you got to look at it as, as a team effort. and You're part of a bigger picture of something. And that way, when people buy into that, especially the employees, they're going to work hard to keep everything safe. Excellent. So what I've heard you say today is that, um, you know, some simple best practices that include uh, multi-factor or two-factor authentication, uh, backups, uh, being aware of social engineering, um, and, and what information you sh share via social channels. Um, beware of public Wi-Fi. Uh, use your use your your cell hotspot, um, and then have a plan. I mean, you know, just you know, what's what's you know, the plan can be a bit proactive. It could be include. It should include actually doing those regular backups. For example, so funny because that you mentioned that because just this morning, um, I got a call from somebody who lost a really important document that they were working on because. They didn't save it. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, and that's that's just one little thing. And they're not it's not going to cause uh, they just have to rewrite the document. But it was hours and hours of work. Right. But it goes back to that whole backup, you know, whatever you're working on. Make sure there's a backup there. Um, so those are some really, really strong fundamentals. Um, just a couple more questions for you there. Uh, you, you know, in the U.S., actually, in, in most industrialized countries right now, the, the demographics or the population is aging, okay? Um, and, you know, seniors and elderly, I, I lived in Japan for five years. And, oh, cool. yeah, and there's a lot of, there's not a lot of violent crime, but there's a, there's a, a fair amount of, um, I, I guess you would call it soft crime or social engineering. And people would call... Um, you know, an older person and pretend to be their grandson saying, hey, I need some help. Uh, could you wire some money to this bank? Or uh, they would pretend to be a company representative saying, hey, your son's, your grandson hasn't paid his bills and we're going to have to confiscate. You better make this payment. And, you know, if you if you ask 10 people, somebody makes the payment and they say, you got to get to the bank today by this time. Otherwise, and so they get on their car and they drive down, you know, or whatever. So, but what you know that's in the japan context but here in the us and in other places why are seniors and elderly so often ta targeted by uh, cyber criminals 
Uh, several different reasons. Probably what stands out to the most is there's a level of trust. There's a level of innocence with somebody from another generation. So they'll take it more at face value. They'll believe somebody. Uh, I relate even the book Senior Cyber, my third book, uh, just the generation that grew up with a telephone, having it mounted on the wall. When that phone rings, typically, I know looking at my grandparents, even my parents to some degree, by the second or third ring, they pick that up. Right. Hello, <laughs> the sober residents may help you. It's, it's, it's courteous, polite, it's expected. My house, the phone rings, my kids all look at one another. Nobody picks the phone up at the home phone. Do we even have a home phone, most people say now? We all have cell phones, and it all goes to voicemail, and everybody texts or emails. So there's a little bit of a disconnect with communication. Cyber criminals know that. They know that the elderly are very prone to pick up a telephone and answer, and they're going to be forthright and respond with truth. They're not going to lie or be, or be guarded because they never had to all their life. They're using that to their advantage. So when they call up and say, hi, Grandpa, how are you doing there? This is your grandson. And then they say, is that you, Johnny? Yes, it's me. I'm, I'm trapped up in Canada, and I got arrested with kids. They thought there were drugs in the car. Don't, don't tell Grandma. Don't tell my mom. Please just send ten thousand dollars. I'll pay you next week. I got it in my account. I don't want this against my college transcript that you held. Blah, 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 blah. You know they make up this fast-moving story. Next thing you know, they're down at the Target getting a wire transfer form, sending them ten thousand dollars because they want to help their grandchild. So when social engineering sounds convincing and they're using the right words, and somebody that maybe their hearing's not as as good as it used to be, maybe their mind has to process and needs a little bit more time, but there's a, a level of urgency associated to it that makes it for an effective social engineering technique so they could get a little bits of information from the person and again, compromise their money. Uh, I talk about several different scams that my, my grandparents were victims of, my father was victims of, of even things that I was targeted within the company and I actually share some practical examples, the Amazon scam and postal scam and phone scam and so on and so forth, and actually steer people through it so they can actually look and compare to what's happening before then. Um, also, it's real important, I think, to, to your point, why older people are they more victims? Because it's tied to emotional things sometimes, too. What do I mean by that? Something COVID, this could affect my health or my loved one's health. Um, it could be something tied to the IRS scams, very common. They've been saving all their lives. Now they're going to be targeted. They got a refund last year and somebody's trying to steal that from them. Or identity theft. There's, there's so many numerous thousands and thousands of evolving scams each and every day, many of which are targeting the elderly. Elderly have more time on their hands, typically. Um, they're, they're more receptive to respond to phone calls, as I mentioned. Emails, they may not be as technical savvy, and they're more inclined to click because it looks convincing. Again, it's not to take anything away from a senior to say that, that, that they're dumb or, or, or overly naive. They're just not as familiar with it. If they're not, I mean, some some of those phishing emails can be very convincing. It says, "Hey, you know, we've had to suspend your Netflix account, or or whatever account. Um, you need to re re-enter your payment information, or you need to re." And it's like, what? <laughs> and we are all guilty of, of probably at that point hovering over and about to click. Well, look at this. How many times have the government agencies at the highest levels, be it politicians, be it DOD? 
some of the, the security agencies implementing these rules and regulations have fallen victim. So if they can't get it right, how could you expect grandma or grandpa to get it right? So it's, it's really about education and sharing information. Take the time to sit down with, if you're a caregiver, take the time to sit down with your parents, your grandparents, your neighbor, and share some of the things that the telltale signs that they have to look out for and be careful. And it, it's always good to have a trusted confidant. When in doubt, my father now, if there's something he's a suspect, if there's a scam, he'll call me up. Hey, Scott, I got to ask you a dumb question. Don't laugh at me, but I just got this phone call. I got this email. Let me read it to you. Let me send you a screenshot. Is this legit? Is this, you know, having a person you can interact with is priceless because that could save you the difference between getting scammed or just uh, making an innocent mistake. Absolutely. And I, you brought up a good point, too, about the, the the attackers try to create this sense of urgency. And whether you're young or old, if you get a message where they're, they're asking you to do something that's kind of anomalous, like, um, hey, I need you to run down to the store and, and buy some gift cards, um, you know, just take a second and breathe. Just, you know, don't because I, I mean, I've seen one. We had somebody in our company. Uh, it was an intern. They got an email from the CEO. But it was it was the CEO's name at a slightly varied, uh, you know, domain, and it, it said, um, you know, hey, Mr. X, um, I have an urgent uh, job for you. Could you uh, for the company get together? I need you to go down and get um, some some gift cards down at Target, um, and. Um, <laughs> And the, the the intern forwarded the email to me. She, it said like, you know, um, should I do this? And I was like, ah, not unless you want to lose the money, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but it's it was really good that they took the time to ask, right? Yeah. Um, and and what they're counting on is that oh my god, I'm an intern or I'm you know new to the company, and the CEO is asking me to do something. I, I better do it. And 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 there's all kinds of different variations, permutations of that. So. Take the urgency out of it. Just take a take a breath, you know. Yeah, um, that, that is really fundamental. I, I I was helping one news agency. They were doing a special investigative report recently. To your point about the gift cards, and there was a couple, and the gentleman in particular, he went out and bought about one hundred twenty thousand dollars worth of gift cards. Wow. And and the the, the cyber criminals really put forth an elaborate social engineering scam, and what they said was. They needed him to buy gift cards at different locations that he'd be reimbursed with a profit. And it was all used to catch cyber criminals that are doing stealing of gift cards. So now think about it. He says, wow, I'm helping being part of a criminal investigation and working with law enforcement. And they're going to do a special show on this. And I'm going to get my face on TV and I'm retired. This is a chance for me to, to get back at the bad guys. And he felt really good about it. So he took his life savings and he spent over the period of a number of weeks, spent over $120,000 buying these gift cards. And then he would read them off on the phone to the cyber criminals unbeknownst to him at the other end. And they took off with all his money. And, and the question I had was how could all of these different places that sell gift cards be giving, you know, selling thousands of dollars of gift cards to one individual? Wouldn't at some point somebody say, hey, are you sure this is okay, sir? you're a little older, it looks like a scam or something. Let me help you right. here. But it happens every day, unfortunately. That's that's so sad. Um, hey, I've got one more question for you. Uh, and and because this is, I, I do um, a lot of road trips. And um, sometimes, you know, when I'm uh, filling up my gas tank, 
trying to decide credit, debit. Um, I'm, you know, what's the right answer there? What do you do? What are the best practices? Unfortunately, it's not one you like to hear. Cash is king. Okay. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, Bluetooth skimmers especially are so easy to place inside of gas pumps throughout the United States. There was finally legislation last October that is telling the petroleum industry and gas stations specifically they got to start upgrading to chip and pin. Unfortunately, the majority of gas pumps throughout the United States, when you, a card is inserted, the mag stripe, which is on the bottom of all our cards, that's where a second read head is, and it's reading that CVV data. And that goes into a separate buffer connected to a Bluetooth module, and that's transmitted usually once a day. The cyber criminal will pull up, download the hundreds of credit cards that are debit cards that are stolen from that particular pump. How do they get in there, you wonder? There's six generic keys to open up any gas pump. And that's national weights and measures gets in there, the station owner, anybody doing maintenance, loading the paper, so on and so forth. That's where they plug in the top of the point of sale. There's a simple Molex connector. You plug in the Bluetooth skimmer that you buy in the dark web for a couple hundred bucks to a couple thousand dollars, depending upon the, the model. And that simple generic key opens it, plug in, close it, 15 seconds, you're in business. That's it, that's all it takes. So they come in in the hours, late at night typically, make a distraction, open the pump, plug the Bluetooth skimmer and close it. Once that Bluetooth link is established between the cyber criminal's laptop and the computer and the pump, he can just keep taking those cards, they go home, they burn fresh cards, then they can buy gas, they can buy gift cards, launder the money, sell your information on the dark web, however they want. And it's really hard to catch these guys. That's the big problem. Yeah, I actually got hit once on that. Um, the pump was acting funny. It wasn't taking my card. And they said, uh, come on and, and use our, our ATM in here. Um, this is out in the middle of nowhere in Western Oregon. And, and, uh, and I went in and like I tried my card twice and it was still having problems. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to buy my gas here. This is just too weird because, I mean, this is something's going on. And um, so I went down the road a little bit, got my gas, and I got my next statement. And there was a $500 charge. And I called the bank. And fortunately, the bank, they, they said, you know what? You're not the only one. And um, this is our, our responsibility. And, it, you know, but and I think if you use a debit card, it's a bit of a, a bit more um, challenging route to get your money back but um, yeah, it's just, it, it, so it does happen. I mean, I'm just saying it. it it's very yeah. serious. Uh, I'm actually part of the National Weights and Measures Skimming Task Force. So I get to hear all the, the gloom and doom of how bad the problem is in certain states where they're pulling thousands of skimmers out uh, every single year. The, the problem is, is multi-billion just in the United States. And to share a brief uh, uh, example to show you how bad the problem is, it's not just hitting at the consumers, you and I, when we just fill up at the pump. Oftentimes, a cyber criminal will place a Bluetooth skimmer, as I mentioned, how they do it there. They'll steal the card, they go home, and they burn what's called a fresh card. They come back, so it's basically a white card with a mag stripe, but it's got your stolen credit card or mine on it. They go back to the same gas station. What they do, though, is they go back with a pickup truck, and it's got a three to 400 gallon bladder inside the back of the pickup truck, and they got one of those covers on it. Now they're pumping either gas or stolen diesel on your credit card or my stolen credit card. They fill that up. Now they go around the corner, they meet the tanker truck, and they pump that into the tanker truck 
that tanker truck goes back to the station and sells it to the station. So you start to see this circular pattern, and this is highly organized, most of it Russian cyber criminal gangs that have come to this country, and they're targeting hundreds, if not thousands of gas stations where they're you know, going through the scheme. And who pays on the, on the backs of the consumers? And which is why three to 4% of interest rates that are paid on the average card where somebody holds a balance, that just goes to cover the cyber security scams that are going on. That's how sad it is. So the American people are paying for it. It's, it's sad, but it also makes you wonder, I mean, these people that can be so innovative, why can't they put those innovative powers to good, man? I mean, you know. A lot of problems, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Hey, um, what, what, you know, I said last question, but, you know, this this conversation about ATMs and debit cards and cash brought up another question. What are your thoughts on things like Apple Pay and, and other, you know, phone-based? Yeah, I'm a big believer in digital wallets. Uh, okay. Google Wallet, really good. Apple Pay, I personally use. And, and probably more important, the, the question is why? The, the difference when I go to a ATM, a gas pump, or even point of sale retail terminal anywhere, and I take my credit card that's got the mag stripe, even if it's chip and pin, once that mag stripe passes a read head, there's a chance a skimmer could be in there that you'll never visually see. So there's huge risk there. Skimmers are everywhere. I can get them. Anybody can get them. You can be an idiot and put it into a point of sale terminal, an ATM, or a gas pump. There's how-to videos, so on and so forth. The difference is when I use Apple Pay, for example, what am I using? I'm using near-field communication. I'm bringing my device that I authenticate because I enter a code or facial recognition. I'm holding it, and I have the passcode, so I bring it near. What it does is it creates a unique one-time encrypted transmission that's tokenized. It's not sending my credit card information or my banking information or anything like that. That's going out through the channels to my bank. My bank is, yes, authenticating and agreeing that that's me and has the, the, the account number and, and the actual credit card information there. So at no point in this end-to-end um, -end encrypted channel can anybody steal anything. So there's no value to cyber criminals. So if I'm using Apple Pay, guess what? Yes, it's very safe. Safer than a lot of these other methods with credit card and all these other things that people are doing. The problem is... The convenience side, as we mentioned earlier, it's not accepted everywhere. Imagine if Apple Pay or Google Wallet was accepted at every gas pump. Guess what? There would be no cybercrime at the gas pump. So that's what's got to happen. It's going to take a very long time until there's a migration over to digital payments. When we see that happening, we're going to see a lot less cybercrime because it's extremely hard to try to hack into that secure ecosystem. Well, that that I guess kind of leaves us on a optimistic note there, um, I, Scott. I I am kind of remiss here. I didn't ask you to tell us a little bit about BVS, and maybe we could wrap up with that. Tell tell us a little bit about the services that you provide. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our, our company, we're really uh, an R and D think tank, but we're also a product company. We make is what I coin uh, wireless threat detection tools, and these cover a pretty broad span, but mostly to stop wireless threats. But we also develop tools to our point that you actually can insert and check to see if there's a second read head in an ATM or a gas pump. So we can actually determine if there's a skimmer in there before you put your credit card in there. We, we call it skim scan. So it's a little simple tool for a couple hundred dollars. You put it in, it gives you green light, red light, you know if you're safe or not. So what we try to do is analyze complex problems that cyber criminals are really good at and then find solutions that can provide easy implementation so 
you or I, a small business owner or government agency, can actually utilize to thwart their attacks. So we try to bridge that gap. And a huge part of it is, is really constantly staying ahead of the curve, thinking like a hacker, thinking like a cyber criminal, and understanding what methods they're using and what tools and technology could be used for good to stop them. And I think that that's really fundamentally uh, the key of our business. And we do everything from search and rescue, saving lives, from when victims get trapped under uh, avalanches, collapsed buildings, fires, so they could be hunted down if they have a mobile device on them. So we do things there to save lives, but even in, in the cyber criminal world, things just to keep people safe and, and keep them safe, as well as um, we have a whole product line. We're on about 16,000 locomotives that we actually will determine if the operator pulls out their phone and they're texting or making a call while operating the train that may have 100 cars with toxic chemicals in the back. You don't want that coming into a city too fast, flipping off the tracks and blowing up. So most of our products are used to really help save lives or keep us safe. And, and that's using technology, at least we feel effectively, to make a difference. Very impressive. Um, and if our listeners wanted to get some more information about uh, Berkeley Veritronics Systems or BVS, where should they go? Yeah, simply go to our website. It, it's www.b is in Bravo, B is in Victor, systemspelledout.com. Or if they want more on the cybersecurity side, simply my name, scottshober.com. And we have lots of tips, articles, thousands of videos and things that are, are free that you can download and learn from and hopefully uh, keep your company safer and yourself personally safer too. Well, Scott, hey, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you've shared a lot of great information and tips, some that I actually haven't heard before, specifically related to the uh, the ATM and, and credit card usage. So thank you so much for being on Secure Talk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Stay safe. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.